Thanks for joining me for Romans 2, 1 through 16. I'll be reading, as always, in the Phillips translation. Now, if you feel inclined to set yourself up as a judge of those who sin, let me assure you, whoever you are, that you are in no position to do so. For at whatever point you condemn others, you automatically condemn yourself, since you, the judge, commit the same sins. God's judgment, we know, is utterly impartial in its actions against such evildoers. What makes you think that you, who so readily judge the sins of others, can consider yourself beyond the judgment of God? Are you perhaps misinterpreting God's generosity and patient mercy towards you as weakness on His part? Don't you realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Or are you, by your obstinate refusal to repent, simply storing up for yourself an experience of the wrath of God in in the day when, in His holy anger against evil, He shows His hand in righteous judgment? You know, Jesus here was more succinct. He just said, Do not judge, lest you be judged. Or long form, he gave that absolutely brutal parable about the king and the indebted servant and the debtor indebted to that indebted servant. Do you remember that one? And how did Jesus conclude that parable? This is in Matthew 18. Listen. In anger... His master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. And yet, friends, let's be honest. We almost can't stop ourselves from this constant, vicious-seeming need to tear others down, to not forgive, to hold that title judge. It would almost seem, and I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here up to chapter 7, but it would almost seem like there's another law ruling within our hearts. But there is another new law in our hearts. It's the glorious mercy of Jesus. It's not the old way. In fact, if Paul's opening words to chapter 2 are like the black and white regarding our judgment, I want you to hear the white and black the inverse. I I want you to listen to how we're actually meant to be living. Now, if you feel inclined not to set yourself up as a judge of those who sin, let me assure you, whoever you are, that that is exactly the correct position to take. For by foregoing this human desire to condemn others, you set yourself free from the equally base action of self-condemnation, since you, not acting as judge, must already realize that you yourself have already been forgiven. God's mercy, we know, is reserved for those with hearts full of mercy. So you are right when you readily don't judge the sins of others, because you're operating within the patterns of His mercy. You are clearly, properly interpreting God's generosity and patient mercy towards you as the greatest of His strengths. You've come to realize that God's kindness is meant, for you and everyone, to lead you to repentance. And you are, by your steadfast recourse to repentance, experiencing for yourself today the ready mercy of God. 
In this day, when in his holy love for the sinners made righteous, he shows his heart in its glorious mercy. Doesn't that sound like the way we want to live? All right, we go on. There is no doubt at all that he will render to every man according to his works. And that means eternal life to those who, in patiently doing good, aim at the unseen but real glory and honor of the eternal world. I love that last phrase. To those who, in patiently doing good, aim at the unseen but real glory and honor of the eternal world. Glory and honor of the eternal world. This called to mind for me a particular, it's kind of a brief moment in the life of Julius Caesar. It was during the Gallic War, right before the Battle of the Sabus. Nearly caught by surprise, uh, with the Belgian tribesmen pouring out of the tree line toward them, here's the description of the scene that plays out. Listen. Caesar's harangue to the troops was no more than a charge to bear in mind their ancient valor, to be free from alarm, and bravely to withstand the onslaught of the enemy. Then, as the enemy were no farther off than the range of a missile, he gave the signal to engage. My friends, remember, in the whole history of the body, the church, we have never not been surrounded, seemingly cut off, within range of the enemy's arrows and darts. And yet, every day, with the ancient valor of Jesus living inside us, with his Holy Spirit inwardly freeing us from all alarm, we are called to bravely withstand and engage, keeping our eyes on the unseen but real glory and honor of, again, the eternal world. The battle is his, and it's already won. But glory and honor, they are still high heavenly possibilities in your every day, every single day. I'll keep reading. It also means anger and wrath for those who rebel against God's plan of life and refuse to obey his rules and who, in so doing, make themselves the very servants of evil. Yes, it means bitter pain and a fearful undoing for every human soul who works on the side of evil, for the Jew first and then the Greek. But, let me repeat, there is glory and honor and peace for every worker on the side of good, for the Jew first and then the Greek. For there is no preferential treatment with God. In the King James, no respect of persons. Which... When you think of how our world typically immediately stratifies people and people groups into nations, classes, levels of power and influence, well, it almost makes God's approach seem hilarious. Like, yeah, I don't really care about any of that. Instead, the whole thing at the level of each individual man, woman, and child rests in their personal relation to God's plan of life and how they react to it. If they rebel and refuse, which is entirely within their prerogative, they earn the fruits of evil, anger, and wrath. They have essentially wagered with their destiny and lost. 
On the other hand, if you and I go all in on glory, on the goodness of Jesus, and on the unseen realities of the internal world, then what do we net? Glory and honor and peace. Those are the natural states of the follower of Jesus. Which actually takes us back to that first group and our call right now to them. When we typically think of evangelism, of the commission we hold to tell everyone everywhere all the time of the gospel of Jesus, it's been my observation that we tend to then get strategic, like carried away by logistics, and sometimes we end up hamstringing our potential best efforts. And I know I have already done this once today, but I cannot help myself, please forgive me, It actually reminds me again of another instance from history. Here it is. After the French Revolution had mostly solidified and was starting to find its legs, you might know this, the other European nations began to want to fight France to ensure that revolution didn't sort of spread out all across Europe. And for the most part, the revolutionary French army actually did fairly well. But... As stronger, strident French voices started to call for further outward battles of conquest, a gentleman named Vergniaud, he was a Girondist, said this, and I think it's so beautiful. Listen. Citizens, let us profit from the lessons of experience. We can overturn empires by victories, but we can only make revolutions for other people by the spectacle of our own happiness. Let me read that last part again. We can only make revolutions for other peoples by the spectacle of our own happiness. My friends, as workers on the side of good, as disciples of the risen living Jesus, that is what we're after. To so enjoy the glory, honor, and peace that Jesus so readily provide that we spark off revolutions by the spectacle of our own happiness. I would pray that the look of the joy of our experience of abiding in him is just intoxicating, overwhelming, and eminently inviting. That everyone would want what we have. Because frankly, we then would have what we have. Wouldn't that be kind of thrilling? All right, let's continue on. All who have sinned without knowledge of the law will die without reference to the law. And all who have sinned knowing the law shall be judged according to the law. It is not familiarity with the law that justifies a man in the sight of God, but obedience to it. And FYI, this is the very beginning of one of the most major themes Paul will address throughout the rest of his letter to the Romans. The law and its implications for mankind. And we must understand, for the Jewish followers of Jesus in the Roman fellowship, their relationship to the law was one of their greatest questions now. It used to be everything. Now is it just something? Or in Jesus, is it now nothing? Or is it even more everything? That's the reason that Paul begins this really seven-chapter argument regarding the law by driving this stake in the ground. Did you catch it? Yes, he says. The law is everything if you are under it. 
But if the law's past is prologue to a greater saga that God is up to, what is this true, this final story? Is there a whole other thread he's been working on? Something that's entirely different for all humanity? I'll continue reading. When the Gentiles, who have no knowledge of the law, act in accordance with it by the light of nature, they show that they have a law in themselves, for they demonstrate the effect of a law operating in their own hearts. Which, by the way, is Paul almost immediately letting us in on the secret that unlike with the old, with its ceremonial outward religious acts and activities, all its precepts and practices that had to be completed perfectly by your fallen flesh, the new, on the other hand, and so gloriously, will be all about experience of God at the level of the heart. Again, the old way, the law, worked with the flesh. The new in Jesus will be at work right here in the heart. Isn't that wonderful? Let's continue. Their own consciences endorse the existence of such a law. And meaning, by the way, there, that different other way, the new thing. For there is something which condemns or commends their actions. We may be sure that all this will be taken into account in the day of true judgment, when God will judge men's secret lives by Jesus Christ, as my gospel plainly states. And by which, by the way, Paul tips his hand again. In the new, how will all men's hearts be adjudged? Pay attention. Dia Christu Iesu. I want you to hear those words, what they really mean. Listen. In a line right through Christ Jesus. Straight through Christ Jesus. In the midst or the presence of Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. By the aid of Christ Jesus. By the mouth of Christ Jesus. And who, let's remember, said, it is finished. So friends, before we delve into this next section, let it be properly said and hopefully understood. The last human being who ever needed to walk under the law, like fighting that battle in the flesh, was Jesus himself. He had to live it in the flesh in order to, how did he say? Fulfill it. You don't. In fact, no man, woman, or child has ever needed to since the day he finished his work at the cross. I would say much more on that to come, but that was for starters. And actually, you know what? In fact, I'd say there's so much more to talk about in this chapter that actually I think that's the spot to call it a day, right there. It's the end of verse 16. Thanks so much for listening. I can't wait to finish this chapter.